Hello and welcome to the Big 5D Podcast, where we make you smarter about small business technology in Africa and the Middle East. I'm your host, Charles Lachlan. I'm content director of Big 5 Digital. So today's podcast is brought to you by the Big 5 Small Business Fintech Summit. It's a virtual event coming 10th March that's all about the opportunity to transform small businesses with financial technology. We have a top-shelf lineup of speakers, including Zapper CEO Brett White and many others. So please plan on joining us for this half-day event. Visit our website to sign up for a free basic ticket, or for $50, get a bonus ticket that will grant you the delegate list, our post-event proceedings report, and a one-year basic membership to Big 5 Digital. If you'd like to associate your brand with this event, drop us a line at info at big5, that's F-I-V-E, digital.org. So this episode of the podcast is the second in our ongoing FinTech Founders series, where we interview founders of Africa and Middle East FinTech startups to learn how they did it. Today's guest is Dana Buys. He's founder and CEO of CloudOne.Mobi, a Cape Town-based FinTech that offers payment and point-of-sale solutions for small businesses. CloudOne is specialized in the retail and hospitality industries, so few are in a better position than Dana to talk about how SMEs have struggled through the pandemic. We get into that with Dana, and also what small businesses need from government and industry to get through the crisis. We also talk a lot about product and how ideas are converted into execution. So let's get right into the interview. We hope you enjoy it, and please subscribe. Thanks. Dana, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Charles. Great. Thanks for having us on the show. It's our pleasure. So here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to your company, uh, CloudOne.Mobi, has a point of sale product focused on hospitality and retail. So really interested in talking about what's going on with those industries and how you've served them through the pandemic and through the recovery ahead. Uh, But before we get into that, which is uh, pretty meaty, I imagine, um, talk about the origin of your business, kind of when it started, how it, what was the original idea, kind of what were you doing before you launched this business? Give us the background and then we'll get into what's going on today. So I've been in in the software business here in South Africa and to some extent um, abroad my whole career. Studied computer science university at Cape Town and started my first business when when I was in my second year at university. I didn't drop out though. I finished because I was an exchange student in America. I never graduated from high school in South Africa and so I had a conditional exemption which meant if I didn't get my degree I wouldn't have a high school certificate either. So I was somewhat motivated to to at least finish my degree. Yeah. Um, So I've I've spent my whole life in, in the, let's call it the micro industry, micro computing industry, um, first developing software, you know, and the original kind of PCs and the early machines and getting involved in Unix. And then kind of ended up building a relationship with Microsoft in, let's call it the sanction years. Um, we, We kind of obviously couldn't do business in South Africa, but we had some businesses in Zimbabwe and, and Lesotho and Swaziland where we could kind of start building some kind of at least technical relationship. And once sanctions were lifted in 91, my company was awarded um, the Microsoft distributorship for South Africa. So you know, that grew obviously in the early 90s like gangbusters. Um, we started Microsoft University here. We started like technical certifications, all of that stuff. 
But in 96, I sold that. And then we started another company where um, <clears throat> we focused more on the CRM side of software. We ended up buying some businesses in America, including a company called Goldmine, which you may kind of remember from the CRM contact right. management kind of old days. Um, and we were operating out of Colorado and offices in Los Angeles and, you know, across the world, really. And that business we sold um, to a Bay Area kind of private equity firm in end of 2005. And I kind of didn't really get back into software immediately. I, a vineyard I bought um, here in the Winelands, Cape Winelands. And um, I wanted to kind of spend a little bit of time getting a bit more on top of the wine business. And one of the things that, that frustrated me, we have a restaurant on, on, at the vineyard. And I used to look at the way customer service works. And it used to frustrate me to see how often you could see guests wanted to order more, but there wasn't a waiter in sight or the waiter didn't pay attention. And I kind of started thinking about this whole idea of, of kind of mobile, more mobile service and, and really getting to self-service. Mm -hmm. The technology just wasn't there. And every time you look at it, you know, like say from the early compact tablet kind of days, <clears throat> they started kind of becoming a bit more mobile, but they were heavy. They had heavy batteries with short lives. The communications was a challenge, etc. So I focused on, on the wine business and, and getting that business established. And in kind of, I'd say after 2010, once the iPad, original iPad came out, it became obvious that two things were happening that creates an opportunity again to, to do something new. And the two things that happened, one was mobile computing and getting some devices that were portable, good battery life, good communications as we started kind of see 3G and things like that in those days. And the other thing was the public cloud. So... You know, in the experience with Goldmine, we had 135,000 companies around the world as customers, but half of them were on like three versions ago kind of software. And it was really difficult to support all of these kind of, let's call it mostly SME type of businesses where they didn't have the IT skills to keep themselves updated. You had to support a whole range of kind of versions out there. And as you started bringing more sophisticated technology out, it was harder to, to support these small businesses. Because these small businesses generally don't have a lot in the, in the way of IT skills. So the cloud was obvious to me, kind of could help break that kind of uh, mold of you know, problems for small businesses. Because with the cloud, we can deal with keeping software up to date, adding new features, dealing with disaster recovery, offsite backups, integrations, all the kind of things that are hard to do on-premise in the SME kind of world. Right. And I started off Tall Order originally with a vision of integrating um, what we built, which was really kind of mobile table side kind of service aimed at the restaurant kind of industry to the then legacy type of point of sale solutions that and it was designed around a device sitting against some wall or on some counter somewhere. And um, my vision was you should be able to walk around with a tablet or a phone device even 
and the waiters should be able to take orders there and then without ever leaving the, the customers. Right. Um, and we spent four years actually building that and we had it rolled out quite broadly here in South Africa and, and in Australia even. But there was one big problem. The legacy point of sale players were not really nice kind of companies to integrate to because they saw us as a threat for their business model. Right. So instead of really being partners and as we'd seen the modern world where you've got APIs open and you really encourage integration and kind of building a bigger ecosystem that way, we, we were battling every time with updates that weren't documented, not announced, breaking the kind of integrations. And because it was on-premise, it was hard, relative speaking. So five years ago, we decided that's that. We tried that route. There were good reasons why it could work and it turned out to be some really good reasons why it didn't work either. So we decided let's build a proper cloud point of sale solution that could integrate to the leading cloud accounting systems and payment systems and loyalty systems and all these kinds of things, but where we had control over our own destiny instead of being dependent on, say, in that case, the legacy POS providers. And that's what we did. So we built tall order from, from the ground up as a cloud product but as a cloud product designed for the African internet. And by that, what I mean is the internet may be there, but it may also be gone. The right. internet can go away here for minutes, as we saw earlier on trying to set up the Zoom call, or it could go away for hours, or in the case of where people steal cable, it can go away for weeks. So in a point of sale environment, the business, the merchant wants to do business for these customers, and nobody wants to hear, oh, well, the internet's down, we can't transact. So it means you've got to build kind of a more sophisticated, more complicated kind of cloud solution that has got very strong offline capacity. And you know, in our world, the internet is slower, more expensive, and less reliable than, say, in America or in Europe. And so we designed the system, which runs against Amazon Web Services uh, you know, at the, the cloud end, but to really have an asynchronous communications kind of mechanism between what happened, what runs locally and what runs in the cloud. So if you're online within milliseconds, that transaction will be reflected up in the cloud. But if you're offline, we can just keep running, keep running. And when the internet comes up again, we synchronize what's happened offline up to the cloud. And if there's new kind of data for for the point of sale from the cloud, we sync that down. And um, that is what we built. And our, our vision has been to, to build Tall Order as the leading cloud point of sale for the Sub-Saharan African market. Um, it's a market that is really large, but completely underserved in right. very much nascent stages for many, many segments uh, at this point in time. Um, and we, we had a vision to, to build a cloud point of sale that could could spread across a, quite a range of, of target markets. So, you know, deal with retail, but also be able to deal with hospitality. And hospitality is, is generally the more complicated of the point of sales because you can open a tab, add many kind of orders over hours, maybe even people might want to split the bill because you want to do an expense claim and this person 
wants to to kind of pay you know for their stuff separately etc you might even have a, a tab that stays open over shifts right you, as i said you get multiple payments gets it gets quite complicated and orders are com more complicated because of of modifiers you want to have your steak medium rare you want to have this side you want to have this kind of wine with it etc that person wants fish and they want this sauce and this kind of side you know as you take it in the retail world you kind of take a box off the shelf you scan the box you pay and two minutes later everything is done well, they're almost two different businesses aren't they i mean they are i mean one is about sort of integrating with an inventory system right and the others are completely different so it was, it was a couple of questions i want to back up a little bit first of all you, you mentioned the original um uh, interactions with the sort of legacy point of sale players were those sort of native um African companies or were those international companies? I'm not sure it matters much, but I'm sort of curious. Um, well, we kind of integrated to one of the leading international ones yeah. and then to some of the local leading kind of hospitality point of sales. So it was a mixture of local and international. Right, right, right. And then, um, so that decision, I, I don't want to sort of gloss over that decision to go from just being sort of the, um, the you know, mobile, the interface. <laughs> Uh, you know, the mobile interface, if, for lack of a better term, to being the actual full point of sale system, that's a big leap, right? And how did that change your um, trajectory for customer acquisition? Because imagine that's a harder, that was at least initially, it was a harder sale to sort of become the full POS versus just a, you know, a solution for the mobile ordering at the table side. Talk well, about think, what that transition was like. Yeah, so I think... The transition um, was a big one, and to be honest, <clears throat> I think the amount of work we had to do kind of uh, was quite a lot more than we probably expected in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And especially given kind of thinking, you know, or with the vision of serving both retail and hospitality, because in retail, there's certain things you need to be able to do in our continent. So you need to be able to do quotes. And then you also need to be able to do a thing called laybys, where a person wants to buy, let's say, a jacket, and they don't have the money to buy the whole thing now. So they pay some now and some next month right. and some the month after. Once they've paid enough, they get the thing. Buy now, but pay even, later. We're, we're, it's like something we're covering at our conference, yeah. Yeah, so that's we would kind of generally hear they, they call it laybys. Right. So it means the item in, in, of inventory actually gets put into reserved kind of mode, Puts it gets put aside and you got to track the payments and and deal with that. Now that never happens basically in hospitality. So in hospitality you have less kind of need for quotes, although there may be kind of links or stuff people quote for. Um, but you wouldn't have something like labels. And in hospitality you've got recipes and how do items kind of get put together out of ingredients and there's waste and stuff like that. And then in retail or retail related, you may not have recipes, but you would have some assemblies often, which would be more like bill of materials. And generally in, in retail, you don't have the waste kind of issues that you would have in hospitality. You also end up with quite different integrations. And, and for us, I think the thing that we've had to work hardest on in terms of, of trying to create a moat between what we do and what the cloud point of sale systems in America or Europe or, or Asia or whatever do, is, 
is really comes down to local integrations and local integrations are quite a big barrier to entry at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to sell, say in South Africa, <clears throat> you've got to integrate to a whole bunch of payment methods that are popular locally that you may never run into in America, right? vice versa. And what we found as well in, in a niche kind of market of hospitality where we've kind of ended up doing relatively well because of, of the decision to integrate <clears throat> is in this called boutique hotels, lodges, and the small to medium size hotels. So those hotels run what you call property management systems. And there's been also a big move in recent years for these property management systems to go cloud-based. And um, that obviously for us then is integration-wise, you know, a lot easier than dealing with the older legacy on-premise kind of property management systems. Um, so we, we integrate to a whole bunch of the leading property management systems. And if you want to compete with us in that market and you don't have the integration, you can't compete. Right, right. The obvious uh, uh, question is sort of, you know, retail and hospitality, you've sort of explained how they're different markets to serve from a technology standpoint. But one thing they have in common is they were both very uh, heavily impacted by uh, the last year of the COVID situation and still um, still are, uh, depending where you are in the world. But I think that's generally true everywhere. Um, talk about kind of how how things unfolded last year uh, and how you adapted we'll start there and then i'd like to get into kind of what the current situation is and, and going forward what the uh, outlook for those industries are yeah so about a year nearly a year ago <clears throat> we started seeing COVID kind of pick up on the radar and it was just kind of accelerating so by march south africa kind of went into a really serious lockdown and um that basically meant that all small retailers had to close all restaurants hospitality businesses hotels taverns spazos anything like that all kind of like let's call it even small informal kind of trade businesses everybody had to close initially for three right. weeks and that dragged on some segments you know like so the alcohol related industries of, of hospitality restaurants hotels was locked for about four months so it was really a very, very abrupt kind of end to, to business for a while. Um, some customers um, wanted obviously to <clears throat> pause their, their, their recurring, you know, the software service kind of contracts. Um, <clears throat> some people scaled down in the number of devices that they use and some customers closed. And some of those customers who have closed have, have in fact not opened again and, and some of them probably never will. Uh, Do you have, I know it's hard uh, from your perspective to project that across the economy, but what is your sense of the magnitude of the sort of permanent closures? Is it a small fraction? Is it a large percentage? Just think, any sense of that? I in, think in our markets, in the SME space, the lockdown kind of hurts small businesses, both retail and hospitality, big time. So, you know, casualty rates on a long term basis would probably be in the 25 to 33 percent basis. So that's right. that's quite a big number. That is huge. Yeah. And, you know, we don't get the kind of aid here that governments in, in America and, and Europe and so on can give 
small businesses, our governments in this continent just don't have the money to do that. So right. most small businesses have really been to a great extent kind of by themselves in this. And secondly, <clears throat> the, the lockdown favored the big retailers and the big online kind of um, the e-commerce, big e-commerce companies versus the small ones. So, you know, if you look at how the big retailers did in the end, people had to buy food, they had to buy basics and all of this stuff. Um, but they, the small shops weren't allowed to trade at all quite a long time. Right. So, you know, it, it, I think the impact for us, I mean, if, if I take the Cape where we're based, where tourism is a really big part of our economy, you know, there are no tourists around. They right. can't fly in. They can't leave their countries. They've got to go back. They've got to go and go into um, isolation or quarantine. And it is really a situation which, you know, tourism has never experienced to this extent, you know, in, in my life for sure. Um, right. And I think it's unfortunately going to take quite some time to get out of it. I don't see the Cape tourism industry picking up much before September, October at the earliest, um, later right. this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you probably know, when Big Five produces, you know, both virtual and uh, in real life events for like, I'm not sure what term we, we use these days to distinguish, but, uh, but you know, live events, I guess. Um, and, you know, our forecast for, you know, we produced an event in Cape Town in May 2019, Fantastic event, fantastic location. We're really excited to come back, and uh, we keep for, we keep pushing out our forecast for for when that's going to happen, just because conditions are very fluid. Um, and, and yeah, we had originally thought perhaps we could come back in May of this year, and that's clearly looking uh, unlikely, or, or that's not going to happen. And so, is it going to be fourth quarter this year or into next year? So, yeah, and I think everywhere I look, it's. Um, you know that the original expectations keep getting pushed further out, so that must be very difficult to to uh, forecast your business around and understand. You know, so what what, what we did, is. you know, one of the benefits of kind of having been around the industry for a few years is living, you know, through a crisis or two. Um, you know, I've lived through and survived the the dot com crash. Right. And so when when we could see what what was happening, we moved really fast to kind of get rid of most of our, our leases in Cape Town and Johannesburg for, for offices. We went remote. We'd been set up, fortunately, systems-wise, you know, quite well kind of um, in terms of the tools we use and, and so on for, for sales, support, internal communications, all the dev tools, everything sits, sits really in the cloud. So in some ways, it was relatively easy to, to go remote. Um, we scaled back on sales and marketing efforts and um, <clears throat> had to cut some jobs on that front because we we didn't foresee kind of much sales sell to, and, right? <laughs> and need for marketing. Um, so I think in retrospect, you know, for for young companies, startup like ourselves, you know, preserving cash and kind of staying in the game is most important. And then you've got to make some hard calls and the calls were really to focus on preservation of the IP, you know, in a market where we could see if given impact on our target market, there wasn't going to be a lot of sales opportunity. And I, I think in retrospect, 
completely the right kind of call. In reality, though, it's lasted a lot longer than we expected. Right. Yes. Yeah, we have the original expectation. I recall this, you know, from back in March, you know, February, March, April. The expectation was that we'll do this for a few weeks, perhaps a month, um, and then we'll get a handle on it and get back to normal, gradually get back to normal by summer. <laughs> and um, the last summer, I think, well, you're uh, depending on the seasons where you are, but you know, mid-year, um, and that just, just simply didn't happen. Um, and for we're still in it, right? And uh, so, yeah. So your original expectation must have been that you had to just sort of ride this out for. Yeah, I, or... I, I really thought that it would be tough until September, and that by September we would start seeing kind of a pickup, and we rebudgeted, you know, for for that kind of uh, plan. And then, you know, it did kind of start getting a bit better, kind of September, October, and then the second wave hit us, and the next lot of lockdowns came. And yeah, we're just kind of back where we were. Right, right. So uh, let's talk about sort of, you know, the, the uh, you know, your story is unique in the sense that you're serving markets that were particularly hard hit, but it's also sort of a common, common uh, experience that many software companies or companies of all sizes and shapes have had. But talk about, you know, you had, a, I suppose, an opportunity um, to sort of reevaluate your products um, and sort of what the market needed during this. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so, I mean, I think a crisis like this gets you to, or gives you a little bit of time to kind of take a hard look at, at things and then trying to understand what is the customer impact going forward. And so what, what's clearly happened, and I think this will be with us long term after this, is it's really accelerated the move to to lower touch, less contact in the whole sales process, and including and very importantly the whole payment process. So you know the the old kind of way of doing stuff, handling loyalty cards, all of these things, was quite a lot of of touch involved, and clearly nobody wants to. It a pin kind of that somebody else has just touched before for a, a chip and pin transaction or even sign a pen <clears throat> or a signature pad that somebody else has just signed. So right. we've put a lot of effort into looking at how do we tailor the system, add new features, tweak kind of features to make the whole sales process lower touch, let people do more stuff on their own devices. And I think this is accelerated stuff that should have been coming anyway. I mean, I shared with you in the beginning where I started off in this whole kind of route was kind of my vision of self-service. And, you know, I find it hard to believe that I can book plane tickets around the world, hotels, I can check in remotely for, for flights, accommodation, anything like that. But in restaurants or whatever you go and you sit and you wait for somebody to serve and it's still like the old days. So right. restaurants didn't want to move really to self-service. They felt they need waiters in the loop. They need to do this and that. And I think coming out of this, we're seeing big shifts in mindset of how people are saying, okay, yeah, well, we need to do things differently and the customers are prepared to do it differently. So let's get over it, move on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's positive. And I think this will help us a lot 
versus a lot of the legacy type of competitors we face, where it's not that easy for them to innovate and to change how they do things really fast. You know, so when you talk about just self-service in a restaurant environment, I mean, I've certainly, you know, I think that has existed, but it hasn't been very well in different places in different settings. Like I've been to airports where, you know, you order everything through a through a iPad at your where you're sit, sitting and so on. But um, you, I, do you believe that there's going to be a, a true self-service experience for dining on some scale? Yeah, going I think definitely that's coming. So, you know, my vision for that has always been that <clears throat> you should be able to get into to the restaurant, use your own device. Everybody's got their own device. Everybody's comfortable and enjoys kind of using their own device. Who wants to touch, especially now, a tablet sitting on the table that 10 people have been kind of touching in the last hour or two before you, and who knows what kind of germs there are on the device. So, you know, I think the move to own device kind of self-service is there, and the way it would work is, in our model, you'd say, okay, I want to kind of help myself you would get paired with the waiter and the reason you get paired with the waiters waiters will still have certain jobs to do and and focus on certain things so in our model <clears throat> a restaurant could say i'm going to let people do self-service for drinks starters salads and desserts but i want the waiter to manage main courses and the reason he may want to do that is they want to manage pressure on the kitchen. You know, if you get 20 orders for pizzas in at the same time, you're going to unha- have mm-hmm. some unhappy customers. You can't make 20 pizzas that fast. So, you know, that's what waiters are there to do. So they can kind of help manage expectation and, and pressure and, and, and so on in the kitchen and help <clears throat> maybe upsell, add more value when it comes to the bigger ticket stuff. But if you want to order another cup of coffee or a beer or a glass of wine or a salad, I mean, these are relatively simple kind of um, orders to to execute. So we see you being able to kind of place some of the items directly and some of the items work with the waiter. The waiter will see what you're doing. And we see fewer waiters kind of employed, adding more value doing more business and therefore upgrading that job and more people kind of taking the, the, the job of a runner. And runners are, let's, let's be honest, is easier to train. You know, it's a lot faster getting somebody like that going than really skilling up somebody to, to do a, a great waitering job, for instance. Mm-hmm. Talk about retail. Um, Cause that's the other part of your business. Um, you know, again, so many shops had to close for extended periods of time. Um, and this experience you're talking about, this touch, you know, contact, this ex- obviously that's as applicable to retail, perhaps in some different ways. Um, but how is the your, your product adapted to retail uh, or how have you led retail out, helped re- lead retail out of this? And, and also just sort of the general outlook for, for retail in, in South Africa. So I... I again, it's, you're looking at less touch. So for instance, let's take the example of loyalty, customer loyalty systems. So generally, customer loyalty systems involves having some kind of card you hand to the person kind of managing the point of sale system. They scan it for you, look it up, and the transaction 
person gets gets kind of assigned to you and you get your rewards for that. Um, in a new version, we, we're rolling out of, of a customer-facing display of ours called MyTab. We would display a QR code that allows the end user to link themselves to that tab or to that invoice in retail. And they can then get their loyalty without the POS operator having to do anything, touch any cards. And in future, that will get extended to where you can look at your loyalty history, all kinds of stuff like that. But it means people do more <clears throat> on their own device. Same with the checkout process. And nowadays having so many different payment options. Again, we've got custom kind of QR codes, which would let the, the user scan that QR code and decide how they're going to pay for this. You know, they're going to use some of the loyalty kind of points for that. Are they going to use this payment method? Are they going to use this card or whatever? But they handle that kind of payment on their own device without kind of, you know, a whole lot of back and forth with, with the point of sale operator. Right, right. So we have little, just a few minutes left here. I want to cover a couple things. Um, one is you have a new product coming out, as I understand it, called VerPay. All right. Could you talk, get, give us a quick rundown on what that is? Uh, and then... We'll wrap up with a couple more quick things. So, yeah, so I'll give you the brief kind of history of Verpa. <clears throat> My eldest daughter studied at um, University of Edinburgh, and I visited her a few times. And every time I went there, if I wanted to book a table at a restaurant, they wanted to get my credit card details of the phone to take a deposit so that I get charged if I don't cancel in time and I don't pitch up, which you can kind of understand. Is that a common practice in South Africa? Or it is that doesn't happen in practice? South Africa. Because nobody here will give you the card over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're not that trusting of what happens to card information when kind of shared like over the phone. Obviously, in England, Scotland, the people were more comfortable because everybody had to do that. So I looked at right. the internet and tried to find some easier way of doing this safely and, and conveniently um, and couldn't find anything. So I came back designed a way to, to handle such telephonic payments or doing business telephonically where you could make that payment easy, safe, and kind of transparent because your other challenge with telephonic kind of business is he said, she said about what is the cancellation terms, when you get a refund, and about when do you kind of have to return something, what is your refund policy, all of that kind of stuff, for instance. So we designed Verpay to solve for these problems, to make it very quick, safe, and transparent to, to take payments over the phone. And that can be used by restaurants, ordering takeaways or collections, um, booking tables, um, anybody in a business where, where time is kind of the commodity. So if you take a golf course and there's a four-ball booked for Saturday and they don't pitch up, that slot's gone forever. People don't hang around the golf course mm -hmm. and hope 10 o'clock there's a slot going to open up. So right. a lot of businesses would like to, to, to get paid conveniently when securing bookings or so, but have found it hard to do. And that's what we built with Verpay. So we made it easy for merchants to take payments, make it very easy for the consumer or the payee to kind of use, use this. And we've been integrating a number of popular payment methods used by merchants so that they can get going without having to sign up new merchant agreements 
get new stuff going. And what we'll do with Verpay is we'll make it completely free in terms of, of use for, for merchants and obviously always kind of free really for the, the payee or the consumer. But for the duration of this pandemic, it will be completely free of charge out there. So you're hoping the pandemic doesn't go on forever. <laughs> well, hopefully, um, hopefully not, because then we have bigger problems to deal with. Yeah, of course. That, that, I shouldn't joke. Um, so, so quick, just to, to as far as the consumer experience goes, the um, is this like a set it up once and then use it? So we decided not to take an app route. So Verpay is mm -hmm. actually deployed as a responsive progressive web app. So the consumer okay. will just go to verpay.app as a URL on their phone or tablet or desktop or wherever they are. They will be able to mm -hmm. connect via social logins where we support Google, Facebook, and, and Apple for now and can add more. Um, so it's very quick and easy to use because we don't handle any of, of the, the sensitive payment details. So that is handled by the payment kind of apps that, or payment methods that we integrate to. So the user kind of authentication is more to connect themselves to the system to be able to share some data digitally without having to spell it or kind of share it otherwise um, with the person at the other end of the phone. And to be able to go back to your history, if there's a dispute, let's say you've got to cancel your golf booking and you want a refund and they say, sorry, you don't qualify. Well, you can go and look at your history and there's kind of an unalterable copy of of the transaction record for both parties kind of available there great great okay so final question is um kind of looking forward uh i guess you know we're you're saying that you're going to extend this for the, the life of the pandemic but sort of looking forward what do you you know two parts to this what do you what is your timeline to when you think things will be better for your core customers and then the second part is what should uh, whether it's government or private industry or whomever ends up footing the bill, what, what needs to be done for your your customers uh, to, to sort of, what assistance do they need to, to get out of this um, or to, to, to come out healthy at the other end of it? Well, I think it's, it's really kind of a question of which country you are and what kind of balance sheets the government sit with. So right. in our continent, the truth is, the governments really don't have the money to bail out these small businesses to the extent that they're probably going to need it. So if we assume right. that we're not really going to see business as normal kind of before, say, Q4 this year, 2021, um, I think it's going to be very tough for a lot of businesses um, by the time we get to, let's call it, some bit more normality out there. And I don't think our government here and most of the governments north of us have got the capacity to help small businesses. So I think, you know, businesses are going to have to innovate. They're going to have to really kind of slim down to survive because, you know, there are no big handouts around. Um, and I think some businesses will go away and new businesses will come in their place. I think, sadly, a lot of jobs will be lost. That's going to take a long time to come back. Mm hmm I mean, I yeah. wish I had a great message for, for how it's going to play out. But I mean, I think the next six to, to eight months is going to be very tough for a lot of businesses, especially as we head mm -hmm. out of our peak tourism season, which we've lost. 
go into winter, yeah. which is a, a lower kind of season year anyway, and then kind of come out in spring and hope that people start traveling again and kind of um, start spending money again a bit more. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Still, still a tough road ahead. Um, you know, the vaccine obviously has given people hope, but that it's going to take a while, I think, for that to to um, to kick in and sort of see the effect in you know reducing cases and people feeling more comfortable to travel and and all these things. It's going to take a while for that to unfold. Yeah, I think. Exactly. But, it, but there is there is light at the end of the yeah, tunnel. Yeah, there is yeah. light at the end of the tunnel, but I think the tunnel has still got. A little bit of tube left ahead of it. Yeah, unfortunately. But yeah. All right. I wish we could end on a slightly more hopeful note, but <laughs> but it you know, the situation is what it is. We have to speak candidly about it, right? And understand it. Um, and businesses need to understand it so that they can do what they need to do, whether it's innovating or uh, managing their costs or pivoting their business. Uh, hopefully it doesn't mean um, uh, shutting their businesses down, but in some cases, unfortunately, it will. Uh, we hope that can be minimized, but, you know. Well, one of the things that we, we expect to see is that mm -hmm. from a tourism perspective, and obviously being in the hospitality market, that's, that has quite a big impact on, on our customers out there, is that you're going to see quite a push away from big hotels and big kind of restaurants right. to smaller. And that, in a way, can, yeah. can help us and our customer base because our target market we don't aim at the really big hotels or whatever. You know, we aim small to medium. And people now don't want to go to the big places. They want to go to smaller places. And I think maybe that's, that's going to last and be with us for quite a while. That's an interesting point because, yeah, even and probably what we didn't get into, and, and maybe, uh, maybe this is for another conversation, but sort of um, – when the smoke clears and, and we, you know, we're back to normal, whatever that is, what does it look like from your standpoint of your industries? And, and you sort of give one point, which is, you know, fewer big hotels, more small boutique, uh, that sort of boutique experience, um, you know, maybe one thing that comes out of this that's stronger at the other side. Yeah, I think so people are going to be looking for more kind of personal, more bespoke kind of experiences versus right. the package trip get onto a big bus with lots of people or, you know, I mean, yeah, I feel sorry for about, the cruise liners as well. I think, you know, that kind of yeah. industry is going to be tough for a while as nice as it used to be. Right. No, I, I don't see that one coming back any, in any form because I, frankly, even with this bit of a digression, even before the pandemic, it was sort of known for, you know, disease outbreaks. Uh, and now this is just sealed it, that it, it's maybe not worth the risk. And that's unfortunate for that industry. But I think other industries come back, they're just going to look very different. And I think, uh, again, that's a whole podcast right there. But I think but anyway, just, Dana, just, look, Charles, well, just one thought, maybe on the positive side. Sure. I think <clears throat> what will happen is, is kind of, we start seeing a bit firmer ground and people make new plans and how they reshape their businesses or start new businesses. I think the cloud will be a big beneficiary and cloud solutions right. will really accelerate because with that, people can work remotely. People can manage things from afar and where people have been in the past somewhat hesitant to deal with the move from on-premise to, to cloud solutions. I think that's a moot point now. And I think the next yeah. step up from that is in the cloud, we can do so much more for small businesses, start applying kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence, do stuff that these small businesses could never, ever do for themselves. 
And right. hopefully, you know, as we start seeing things pick up, um, that kind of level of competitive um, capacity will will help really kind of accelerate a new breed of businesses out there that are really kind of tapped into technology and, and, and leveraging it for competitive advantage. Right. And I think th that's a very good point. And I think, you know, when you have crises like this, the, the businesses that do emerge at the other end tend to be more sophisticated and, um, you know, more adapt with technology and, uh, you know, it's sort of almost a Darwinian process, uh, unfortunately, but that's what happens during crises like this. Yep. So uh, I would agree with you and that certainly technology will be a very big component of uh, businesses uh, survival and, and adaptation uh, for whatever the new normal is. So we'll end it there, Dana. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you joining us today. Great conversation. Thanks for your insights. And uh, just a note for our audience that you will be joining us at our uh, FinTech Summit, which is on March 10th virtually. Uh, so stay tuned for more details on that. And uh, again, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Charles. Good luck your side. All the best. Take care. Bye.